You are listening to episode 76 of the Remind Yourself podcast. Welcome to the Remind Yourself podcast, the podcast for physician moms just like you who want to ditch mom guilt, stop yelling, and start enjoying their lives today. I'm your host, Michelle Chestovich, certified life coach, family physician, and mom of four. If you want to overcome overwhelm for once and for all, this is the place for you. Hello, Mama Docs. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Today, you are in for a treat. I am having the most wonderful conversation with Dr. Kara Pepper, and we are going to talk about perfectionism and imposter syndrome, something that I know affects all of us, and it makes life so much harder than it needs to be. And she is the expert in this area, and I'm so delighted that she decided that she would take some time and come on my show today. Welcome, Dr. Kara Pepper. Can I just say welcome, Dr. Pepper? I just love that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks so much, Michelle. It's really good to be here with you and your your people. It's really awesome. This is something I think we can all relate to. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I was a professional ballet dancer for many years, and when I couldn't dance anymore, decided to go to my fallback plan of going to med school, brought all my perfectionism and workaholism with me, and rapidly burned out seven years into my career. I'm a primary care physician in Atlanta, Georgia, but left my practice this year after 14 years to start my own entirely telemedicine practice. And I work not exclusively, but dedicated to eating disorder care across the Southeast. So lots of themes of perfectionism and black and white thinking and all of that through my personal and professional lives. So I also coach, as you know, women who are going through career transition, perfectionism comes up in a lot in a lot of those conversations as well. Fantastic. So I knew you had done ballet. I had not known that you had done it for that long. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I really do believe that the reason I'm a physician is because of my time in ballet. You know, we're lifelong learners. We show up every day trying to get better and better at what we do. Lots of workaholism and perfectionism, but just the same personality types, just different skill set. So it's an easy transition. Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating because in my mind, they seem so discordant, but as you describe it, I'm like, no, there really is a blend. So like some of these things, I always say we've been trained, we've trained our brain to do things to like get the A's, right? You don't get into medical school being an average student. So some of that working hard, trying to achieve can be helpful. Where do you see that it really takes a turn and becomes not helpful? Yeah, it really is. What is it creating for you in your life? And I just want to start actually by clarifying that perfectionism is just this adaptive behavior that tries to keep us from feeling things that are uncomfortable. So if you think about those grades that we all wanted to make back in med school, like let's say you got your your first failing quote, failing grade of a B minus or a C or even something else. And then you told yourself, oh man, you know, I should work harder. You know, I, I didn't study enough. I see that I need to work harder. And then the next time you prepare for a test, you say, I just need to work harder so I don't fail. And then Over time, that thought can be habituated. And so by the time you make it through residency, oh man, I'm working 80 hours, but I just need to work a little harder to take care of these patients. Or you're in attending, we like tons of charts, and now perhaps you have other obligations outside of work. Oh, I just need to work a little bit harder. So it becomes this thought that's actually not helping you anymore. So ultimately, perfectionism is just trying to keep us from feeling things that we don't like, like failure or shame or exposure. And when you realize that the perfectionism is causing the problem, 
and not the avoidance of the shame because we can handle shame or exposure, then that's when you know it really becomes an issue. It's keeping you from the life that you really want and creating a trap that you can't get out of. I love that explanation. And as you were saying it, I had kind of a flashback to reading, I think it was Dr. Kristen Neff's book last year. Mm -hmm. I think she Mm -hmm. was talking about that, how in the beginning it can be like a tool that we're like, okay, we just got to try a little bit harder, but then it just becomes this bad habit. And it's just like, it's, you can't fulfill the do more, do more, do more. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cycle of, you know, a lot of the perfectionist thinking is literally just that, just these optional thoughts that we have. But if I can just quote, fill in the blank, get all my charts done, make straight A's all the time, be the perfect mom, never look like an idiot in board meetings with my partners, never feel embarrassed when I get promoted. If I can do that, then I'll be okay. But it's like a fantasy that's like totally unattainable because we're humans. And then when we fail to attain it, we feel terrible. And then we beat ourselves up with self-criticism and judgment and then we say, okay, well, next time I'm going to do better. So we just get stuck in this yes, like cycle. Yes, try a little bit to... more, try a little bit more. We just keep like upping the ante. That's right. Which is why it never goes, yes, which is why it never goes away. Why burnout is so common in this population of folks. And so, so it really keeps us from having like joy and progress and connection because we're so tied up in that perfectionist cycle. So the things that we really actually care about, it doesn't help us achieve those things. So helpful to hear. We think it's going to help us achieve, but it actually keeps us trapped. Now, here's something that I would love to ask you. How often do you feel that people identify with being a perfectionist? Because in somewhat of my experience, they're like, well, yeah, I really want to work harder, but it's because I'm not good enough. Or what, what is, how do you describe that? Or what has your experience been? Yeah, I think a lot of folks think of perfectionists as people who have their act together. They don't see perfectionism as a negative thing. So they think these are the people who grow their own organic vegetables and are president of the PTA <laughs> and also chair of the residency program. Oh, yeah, right. Do all those things. But really, most perfectionists are messy, normal humans and see themselves as failures. And if they could just be more, quote, perfect, then they could be perfectionists too. But really, it's the rigidity, the self-criticism, the self-loathing that, that actually qualifies perfectionism. It's not a good thing to be a perfectionist. no. It's not a good thing. And something that I learned a while back that was interesting, like being a perfectionist, it's like we're just really trying to avoid that discomfort. But, you know, it holds us back in life from finding the joy, from trying a new goal that we're really excited about, but we're afraid we might not be awesome at it. So we kind of, what I term, fail ahead of time. We just don't try those things. That's exactly right. Kind of keeps people small and in a box almost. Yeah, that's really what, this comes down to for me is that there's so much for those of us who are socially conditioned or socially raised to be women in this society, you know, a lot of the messaging that we receive from very early ages is really meant be nice, don't rock the boat, be pleasing, always have a smile on your face, do better than everyone else. And it it really is a way to control us, to keep us small, to keep us from moving forward. And if you knew that no matter what, you could just like raise your hand in the meeting and whatever was on your mind, or you could absolutely go and apply for that position, even if you're not 100% qualified, you are moving yourself forward because of your tolerance of imperfection, instead of being trapped by this perfectionist thinking. And so this perfectionism, although it starts as a way to keep us safe, it actually inhibits us from the purpose that we're supposed to fulfill, our joy, our connection, our impact on this world. And so it really does limit us long term. It's a way of control of women, which is really what my issue is. If we could just get rid of that brain space that it's taking up, who knows what we would be able to accomplish in this world. 
Yes. And that a fact that it, I think, inordinately affects women, right? The way we've been socialized and that we think we need to do more. Again, we get caught in that trap, but that's not what we need to do to like bust through and like take over. Right. My, my listeners right. hear me sometimes say how like we need to take over, right? Like it's our turn, ladies, let's go. Again, we have to work as a team, but it's a, it seems like it's a big problem. And then in conjunction with talking about imposter syndrome, I know you describe several different areas of imposter syndrome. Talk to me a little bit about how perfectionism is tied and related to that. Yeah, absolutely. So just to be clear, if you'll indulge me, like Please. This term, this term, imposter syndrome, I don't particularly love because it pathologizes normal human emotion, right? And so, yes. at the core, and the core of imposterism, we'll call it, is really just uncertainty. And you know, we are trained to be excellent clinicians. We want things to be exact. We want to make, we want to do good work and be excellent doctors. But like, uncertainty is normal, and also it's really helpful. Like if you've ever had a patient who's come in and they tell you, oh, this is my diagnosis, this is what I've got. And you listen to them and you're like, that just doesn't sound right. Like your uncertainty helps you uncover what's actually really going on. It's not, there's nothing to fear about it. But when we make that mean, oh no, I don't know what's going on. I bet that means that I don't know what I'm doing. I bet that means I'm not qualified. I bet that means like I really, I'm out of my league and I'm not a good doctor. It's the uncertainty and the shame together that create this like, so-called imposter syndrome, imposterism. Oh, I love that terminology. So thank you for that. Cause I don't love it either yeah. because I'm like, it's not a syndrome, right? It's not a disease. Right. No, it's, it's a not. disordered way of thinking. Beautiful Correct. explanation. And then the last point I'd like to make about that is really like, and I'm sure you and your listeners talk about thoughts and where they come from, but I think it's really important to own where some of this imposterism comes from. Like if you're a woman who's been taking up space in a male dominated field and you're told that you don't deserve to be there, it's very easy to have feelings, thoughts of doubt and uncertainty. If you are a woman of color who's been told you need to work 150% of any mediocre white man, like it is very easy to feel that you don't deserve to be there, that perhaps you don't, you're not qualified. And so those are ones of many, many examples, but there are systems of power, systems of oppression that make it very easy for us to have those imposter thoughts. So the power we have is to really own, like, I am qualified. I absolutely deserve to take up space in this world. And this is just a message that is not helpful that's been given to me by generations of systems of power. Oh, my gosh. So beautiful. I just want to, like, gather all the people and go and march and just, like, you know, share this information. <laughs> because I think people, women think that they have a problem. Right, right. Yeah, it's like 80% of women, particularly in medicine. So the original kind of quote treatment for imposterism was just say, hey, I feel ashamed and I feel uncertain. Oh, you do too? Okay, great. We're all in this together. Now we can feel okay. And while it's nice to have some solidarity, it doesn't make that inner critic really shut up, right? The beauty is that you can predict exactly when it's going to show up, which is at moments of pivot, moments of career transition, moving to a new city, new social groups, you just got promoted, now you have new responsibilities at work, you know, you graduate to the next PGY, whatever, like your critic is going to be there to greet you because of course you're going to feel uncertain. You've never done these things before. It's new responsibilities. And so your critic is going to be there with that little narrative that they have. Don't be an idiot. Don't let people know. You don't qualify. You're not smart enough. Whatever, whatever your inner critic says, you can predict that they're going to be there. And so there's strategies to manage that as you experience it. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Do you mind sharing any of these strategies? I mean, number one, people hire Dr. Kara Pepper. He works on this a lot, right? Like if you're going through transition and I always just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But one thing that I know is the transitions really can be hard. And I find that it can be particularly challenging right after residency, because in residency, I think a lot of us band together. like, wow, this is hard. I'm really doubtful. I don't really know. I'm having uncertainty. And yet we're in it with each other. I think that can be really helpful. And then all of a sudden you go and you're an attending and you're with people who've been there. 10, 15, 20 years. And then I think that that inner critic really can pipe up. And I found after my sister died last year that the first six, seven years of practice are particularly challenging for our mental health. So I don't know if that's something that you found to be true or if it's just all transitions. Totally. It's at every level of transition. Um, In fact, Michelle Obama very famously has talked about imposterism showing up for her at every level of her astounding career, even when she's literally at the highest table in the world. So it's important to know that there's no threshold of success that's ever going to get rid of this critical voice. It's just there because it is trying to keep you safe. That is the sole purpose of this voice. If it can just tell you you're an idiot enough times, you will be small, you'll be quiet, you won't raise your hand, you won't put yourself up for promotion, you won't ask for a raise, because doing that creates vulnerability. So the critic is there to make you small and stay safe. That's their job. And so once you know, like, oh, yeah, like, that's all you're here for is to keep me safe, like, actually, you're driving me crazy. You're actually <laughs> yeah. creating a lot you of anxiety. Just be quiet and sit <laughs> down. Yes. Right. Yes. I think that's, that's really good to know. It's not a problem that the voice is there. But this is something, again, my listeners have heard that our thoughts, we have so many per day and they're neutral. Like we don't have to believe them. But when we think a thought again and again and again, it feels like a truth. So when your critic says like, you're no good, you're no good, you start to believe it. How do you help people kind of get out of that thought loop and realize like, hey, there are other options. It's not a truth that you're horrible. Yeah. So one is being the critic. Yeah, totally. One is just recognizing very clearly, like what specifically are they telling you? And then to think, where did that thought come from? Like, was it something that was handed to you by a parent or a coach or an adult when you were a kid? Like, oh, you should try harder, you know? Or is it something you just kind of internalized over time? Like, what is that thought and where did it come from? And then secondly, to say, is this helpful for me? And when they offer me this suggestion that's going to try to keep me safe, I know it's actually keeping me from moving forward. So I think of like that, like window in the in the limousine that you just kind of close, even though like the people in the back are creating a lot of ruckus, right? Like your toddler in the back seat, like your critic is going to come with you forever. But if you can get them to just be quiet a little bit, you can say, well, we're just going to do it anyway. In other words, in, in the world of this brain thought, like, thanks brain for keeping me safe, but we're going to do this anyway. Even if I'm in front of the room and my voice is wobbly and I feel like I'm in SVT and I'm having a meltdown, like I know that I am capable and I'm going to show up and do this. And I'm going to give myself some compassion as I learn to love myself through this discomfort. And the more that you're able to tolerate the discomfort over and over again, you're just like, yep, there's my critic. Yep. Again, they're just talking to me again. But you know that you can show up for yourself through the discomfort and tolerate the discomfort. And that's ultimately what makes the critic quieter over time. Yeah. You don't engage. You don't like, right. like noted, you know, that's kind of what I try to teach yeah. my clients is like, okay, just to gain awareness. So I'm having these thoughts again and again. And yeah. then like, we can just like say, okay, thanks. Duly noted. Now you need to be quiet. Just like if we tell our toddler, no enough, they'll maybe stop asking. Sometimes that's what we hope anyway. 
Yeah. And sometimes the toddler has a meltdown in the target line and you just have to like abort the mission and exit the store. Right. And like, we're human. Like sometimes the stress levels get so high that we say, I can't handle this right now. And that's okay. But for the most part, the consistent behavior of saying, even though this feels scary, I can show up for myself. Even though this feels uncertain, I know how to ask for help. Even though I've never been an attending before and I feel like I'm going to kill all my patients, I know how to manage patients and I can ask for help when I need it, right? Counting the things that you know are true for you, keeping the patient front and center, showing up for yourself, whatever those things are, that's the comeback to the imposter. So having pre-decided what you're going to tell this imposter is also really helpful because when you show up in front to give at the podium to give the presentation, your, your imposter is going to be standing right there with you. So what do you want to tell them? What do you need to know? How can you give yourself that sense of security, even though it feels wobbly at the time? I love that. And I love that you acknowledge, even though you're acknowledging that there's doubt and uncertainty, and that's not a problem, yeah. even though this is what's going on. Oftentimes I'll ask my clients, you know, when they're stuck in this spinning, I'll say, now, what are we forgetting to remember? Because our brain is so hyper-focused on how we're not doing a good job and our brain is gathering all the evidence. Sometimes to get out of it, I'm like, can we just crack open a little bit? Like, what are we forgetting to remember? But similarly, you're saying like, even though you have this doubt, like, what do you know? I mean, it's sort of a different way of asking it. And I love it just to decide ahead of time, like, hey, I know how to take care of patients. I know how to take care of these basic things. And even though I don't know everything, I know where to go for help, right? And to normalize that. Yeah, because the proof doesn't have to be wishful thinking or toxic positivity. The proof is you. Like you made it through whatever that looked like. You made it through med school. You made it through residency. You made it through your first year. Like those things were not easy, but more specifically, as far as this doubt and insecurity goes, like, they felt wobbly and uncertain and you just kept showing up even though it was scary and you made it, right? So right, because we have done scary things, right? The yeah, first time we, absolutely. I remember, I still remember how I felt the time I had to knock on the door and go in and examine that first patient. I mean, I was terrified. That's right. That's exactly right. So like just talking to the patient was terrifying and then doing the central line was terrifying and then having to watch someone pass away for the first time was terrifying. But like, and yet here you are, right? So When you're in those moments that feel super overwhelming, it's actually better to do nothing at that exact moment and allow that like really high intensity emotion to settle and then get curious about what if that's not true? What is also true? How do I know I can show up for myself? How do I know I'm totally competent? How do I know that I'm a total badass in this situation? How do I know I'm overqualified for this? So allowing that intensity to come down and then just know, go looking for the stuff that's already true. That's so helpful rather than like running away. I think people feel that uncomfortable feeling and then they run away or just like, I guess this means I have to read the textbook again tonight to like shore (laughs) up on, shore up on all the things. Yeah. I mean, all the work that you do with your clients and I love your podcast. Thank you for putting it out into this world really is about coming back to you, right? Like, what do you need today? What do you need mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physical, whatever those things are? But in those moments where you're really terrified, like, what do I need right now? Maybe I just need to call my friend and be like, can you just give me a pep talk? Like, I'm terrified about this presentation I'm about to do. Or like, what do I need right now? Actually, reviewing the presentation again is not helpful. I need to go to bed. Like, what do I need? And it's that trust in you despite the uncertainty or in the presence of uncertainty. That's how the imposter voice starts to get quieter. It's just like background noise after a while instead of the loud megaphone that it likes to be. Gosh, I love that. And I love 
explaining that this is something that we're not taught to do, to ask ourselves, what do we need? But the more stressed we are, I think it's so good to check in. I said, you know, we do vital signs for a reason with patients, right? And yet we get to this like stress level of like 99 out of 100. And they're like, oh my God, I just got to do more stuff. Like just breathe for a second and just ask, what do I need? You said it so beautifully. Maybe it's just call a friend. Mm -hmm. So good. So helpful. So if someone is listening right now and they're like, I think that might be me. I'm not sure. I always feel like I need to do more. I don't think that I'm good enough. I have a lot of doubt and uncertainty. What would your first suggestion be? First is just congratulations in a way, like thank right, you for acknowledging. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for acknowledging that you are human and you're having this, this situation, whatever that situation looks like. So naming it and noticing it is always the first step. And then the next step is really to say, what do I need in this situation? Do I need help or do I need just a moment to like unwind? Like what is the next step? And I know that you offer coaching as, as do I in these areas that we're really passionate about, but there's a lot of different answers to that question, but the answer always in coming back to yourself, you know what you need. Like, I don't know what you need. You know what's best for you. So that could look like any a number of things. So starting to just take the next right step. Often we like to blow up our entire lives and start over. That feels like the only right, 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 right. Just burn it all down and start over. That's, a lot of us do right. that though. Uh, yes, I have been known to do that. But sometimes it's just like, what is the next right thing? It feels so overwhelming to look at all that. Like maybe I just need to send an email. Maybe I need a glass of water. Maybe I need to empty my bladder. Maybe I need to call my friend. Like, I don't know what that is, but just what's the next right step and try that. And if coaching is the right option, there's lots of folks who can help in that arena as well. Now, I know you coach a lot on transitions, but I feel like I've seen a lot of your stuff about perfectionism and imposterism Mm -hmm. as, you know, you've lived this perfectionism in the past, right? So- Tell us, I know you've got a group that's going to be starting up soon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's basically for any physician woman who has checked all the boxes and they look great on paper and they're just unsatisfied. It's this restlessness that we're all experiencing in COVID. You want something more. You may not know what that exactly looks like. This is a deep dive group for eight weeks for women physicians who can really build community and figure out what that transition may look like. It may look like a seismic blow up your life. Or it may be a literal small shift internally that no one knows but you, but it creates this joy and connection that you really want. And the best part about it is that we're going to do an in-person retreat. So imagine showing up at a conference and knowing every single person that's there. That's what this retreat is going to be like. So it really that is. That sounds um, absolutely thing. amazing. So Thank that's you. at the end of the your program? Yeah. So the um, group stuff will start September 11th. We'll meet twice a week for eight weeks. And then the retreat is the weekend before Thanksgiving in November. Oh my gosh, that sounds absolutely amazing. So you've got eight weeks to build community, get to know all these amazing women and then come together. Are they all going to come to your house? (laughs) Well, it will be in Atlanta. There's this beautiful like farm to table retreat center that's uh, right outside town. It's spectacular. The food is great. We'll do all kinds of restorative stuff. And I promise we're not going to talk about, you know, deep dive topics in medicine. It's really going to be about connection and restoration. Wonderful. Here's a question because I see your beautiful Instagram posts with your yoga. Are you a yoga instructor? Will you offer some yoga at your retreat? I am not a yoga instructor, but we are going to do yoga outdoors in this beautiful venue. So it's going to be spectacular. That sounds absolutely spectacular. And we will make sure we have a link in the show notes so people can find out all about that and sign up and take part of this amazing opportunity. 
Before we wrap up our conversation, I feel like I could just keep going in all kinds of different directions, but we're going to stay focused on this perfectionism and imposterism. That's the new terminology. What have I forgotten to ask you about that you think would be really important for listeners to hear? If anything. I think there's a lot to say about that, but I think one of the most key things that people in perfectionism and imposterism experience are loneliness. Like they feel like they're alone in this, that everyone else has their act together and that they clearly are the problem. And also persistent sense of failure. Like if they could just be good enough, then they could feel okay. And so as someone who takes care of women clinically in my clinical practice and also in my coaching spheres, to be able to look into other people's lives and see that we are all in this together and really struggling, I think that's the most important thing. And so as mental health needs skyrocket through this country, really just understanding that you're not alone and that this is so, so common and that it does not have to be like this forever. And so there are ways to be able to move forward and we're here to help. I think that's awesome. And again, my listeners hear me and I'll say it again and again, like we have to start talking about our struggles. Nobody's perfect. You know, we see people on social media and we think, oh, they've got it together. Look, they've got matching outfits in their family photo. They're doing this and I can hardly get it together. And nobody's doing okay. My listeners have heard me say, it's okay to not be okay. Let people know, share your struggles and know that you're not alone in this. People who've listened to me before have heard me speak a lot about my sister, Gretchen, who died a year ago by suicide. And she brought up a few times to me that she felt like an imposter. Yeah. And I mean, I wish I could go back and share with her now what I know. I didn't realize it as a danger sign, but as a part of the whole spectrum of burnout, it can be pretty nasty for people if they feel alone and hopeless and like a failure. Yes. And that's exactly it is that by any metric, we are all well above the curve. We're doing great. Right. But that is the lie that this critic wants you to believe is that you are failing despite everything, but despite the abundant proof of that otherwise. And so it's, it's the shame and secrecy that keep us, keeps us trapped. And we think it's trying to keep us safe from exposure But really just cracking into that and knowing that everyone around you is experiencing that really truly on some degree. You know, it may not be full blown. It may be only 10%, but we are humans who are desperately looking for connection. And so really just being like the the messy mom, the messy one to be like, yeah, my life's a shit show. Like sometimes that in and of itself is enough to just crack open that space for connection. And so don't be afraid Thank you for doing that. And again, my whole mission with all of this is just to normalize this. Like, yes, we have struggles, but the scary thing about mental health when our brain is going crazy, we think we're a failure and we believe it. And then we want to keep it quiet, right? That's where the shame comes in. Shame grows in the dark. So like, I just, you know, I let out all the messy, right? Like just, you know, I'm pretty open that way. And I know not everybody's like that. And certainly everyone is their own individual. That's great. But just to find one person that you can share your messy with. Right. Helps you know you're not alone. Yeah. So good. And you're such a wonderful example of sharing what you've gone through and showing how there can be such joy and fulfillment in life and richness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the Instagram picture, right? Like feel free to have a conversation, send me an email, text, or send me a DM because my life has has a lot of privilege and also it has been exquisitely painful because guess what? I'm human. And so I do think the things that have saved me through some very dark times, saved my career, saved my mental health, were really having someone who cared enough to say, are, how are you really? Or me to finally like send up the white flag and be like, just can't do this anymore. 
the probably some of the most powerful words that have ever come out of my mouth is I can't do this anymore. And that's okay. Yes. Well, thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your vulnerability and your expertise. You're speaking so eloquently on this subject. I just love it. And if you haven't yet written a book, I think that needs to be in the works. (laughs) All right. I'll keep you posted. (laughs) Indeed. Any last words for my listeners? Because I'm telling you, I can tell you right now that I'm going to have to have you on again. We're going to have more conversation about this. It's mostly just gratitude for you, Michelle, like you leading with vulnerability and allowing us to support you in the pain of losing Gretchen. It really, I think, dispels that notion that people don't care. It's easy to, to have that feeling when you're deep, dark, depressed that no one's going to miss you. And, and here you are living this beautiful, messy, painful life and celebrating your sister and celebrating all of us. And so thank you for lifting us up. Thank you for your message. And thank you for having me on today. Thank you so much. And again, I'm going to keep sharing my sister's story because I think it gives people permission to speak out. I know there are people who have reached out for help because they've heard Gretchen's story and hearing us talk about this and to know that you're not alone and you're not a problem. And this is not a syndrome. In fact, I think the more we talk about it, the more we normalize being human, the better it's going to be for all of us women physicians. That's right. That's right. right. Thank you so much for taking time and being on here today. Thank you. Are you ready to take control of your life and put these tools into action? I'm here to help. I offer free consultations for physician moms to see if my one-on-one coaching package is right for you. You can sign up for a free consult at www.mamadoclifecoach.com.